Nicholas Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Episode 15, 1891-92 vs England, in the Lord's good graces. In the three years following the disastrous 1887-88 season where two English teams had competed for the attention of an increasingly jaded cricket public, there had been no tours by English sides. This had allowed the clashes between the different colonies to gain greater significance, leading to a recovery in crowds for those matches. The increased interest also led to a recovery in the finances of the local associations, particularly the Melbourne Club, which had lost significant funds from sponsoring Vernon's side. The renewed interest also saw an increase in skilled cricketers making a name for themselves, with South Australia led by George Giffen signing to match the more established cricketing states in New South Wales and Victoria. Other issues had also brought the associations closer together. The lack of communication regarding the 1887-88 season and the selection of the wrong burn for the 1890 tour had led to discussions around creating a unified body to organise cricket in the country. Talks would ramp up as 1891 progressed. Meanwhile in England, plans were afoot to break the drought of English tours. Henry Holroyd, better known as Lord Sheffield, had long enjoyed a fondness for cricket. After playing one first-class fixture, he moved into administration, becoming president of the Sussex Cricket Club. He also established his own cricket ground, where he would regularly host the touring Australian sides for first-class fixtures, usually as the opening match of their tour. As part of a diplomatic posting, he had spent the English winters in the warm climate of Constantinople over the past three years. Looking for more sunny days, he wrote to Harry Boyle, who had corresponded regularly with Sheffield when planning Australian tours overseas, gauging how well an English touring side would be received. Boyle, after consulting with the key stakeholders of Australian cricket, suggested that such a tour would be warmly received, but in order to ensure the success of the venture, Sheffield would have to convince W.G. Grace to join, 18 years after his previous tour to the country. Grace was still the biggest figure in cricket, but this time was literally as well as figuratively. At 43 years of age, he had ballooned out to over 110 kilos. Coming off a strenuous county season and going into an extensive overseas tour was not the doctor's idea of a good time, so he initially refused the request. However, Sheffield was persistent and offered financial terms that were too generous for Grace to pass up. All up, Grace was offered a fee of £3,000, expenses for himself, his wife and two children, who would be joining him on the tour, as well as the cost to hire someone to maintain his medical practice. All up, the amount that Sheffield expended on Grace would be upwards of $1 million Australian dollars in today's money, an outrageous sum. However, Grace would also be the biggest draw, offsetting the amount spent to convince him to join the venture. Sheffield was also encouraged to proceed with the tour with support from a variety of British high society. English diplomats encouraged the tour as they hoped it would foster a sense of Australian nationalism that would hasten federation. He was also encouraged by Lord's administrators Ivo Bly and Lord Harris, who were concerned that Australian cricketing standards were in decline and that a new English tour would arrest the slump. Sheffield then engaged with the two men most experiencing in organising tours down under in Alfred Shaw and Arthur Shrewsbury. Shrewsbury declined to participate as a player, but helped Sheffield plan the tour, breaking down expected expenses and a rough guide to the itinerary, while Shaw would act as general manager of the trip. They also encouraged him to acquire a local Australian agent to arrange matches. They reached out to Ben Wardle, secretary of the Melbourne Cricket Club. He put them in touch with Frank Illingworth, who worked for Harry Ball's firm. Illingworth contacted local associations. South Australia and New South Wales agreed immediately, while the Victorians took a bit more persuading, only agreeing once they learned that WJ Grace would be leading the tour. Sheffield also agreed to matches in Queensland, Tasmania and New Zealand, with three test matches, one in each of Melbourne, Sydney and Adelaide. Now that the tour was confirmed, it was a matter of choosing who would join. Like Shrewsbury, George Gunn declined to tour, but the side still included a strong core of experienced players, with Lohman, Briggs, Peel, Stoddart, Adderwell and Morris Reid all being familiar faces to fans down under, whilst Robert Abel, Gregor McGregor and John Sharp had played test matches at home against the touring Australians. Octavius Radcliffe, George Bean and Hilton Phillipson rounded out the 13-man squad, considered by many to be the strongest to leave England. 
The team spent four months travelling to Australia, stopping in Malta and Ceylon for matches. They were accompanied on tour by the famous explorer Henry Stanley, of Dr Livingston, I presume, fame, who was heading to Australia for a speaking tour. They arrived first in Perth, where Wardle, who had taken over from Illingworth as the main local contact for the English, met the side. There, while Sheffield informed Wardle that he would not be making any speaking engagements on the tour due to his poor health, he was also instructed to pass on a gift of 150 guineas to the New South Wales Cricket Association in order to strike a trophy that would be played for between the three main colonies of New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia. The English then made their way to Adelaide for the first match of their tour against South Australia. They arrived in early November and began practising. Meanwhile, the first colonial matches of the season was taking place, with Victoria travelling to play South Australia. Thus, the English were able to witness one of the most spectacular all-round games in cricket history. George Giffen scored 271 in the first innings, before taking 16 wickets to give the South Australians a thumping innings and 164-run victory. Grace himself would say that Giffen was the best all-round player in the world following that display. Ten days after Giffen's spectacular achievement, he was on field again as the English opened their account with an innings victory over South Australia, despite Giffen's seven wickets in the English innings. The good form continued a week later as the English won by an innings against Victoria, highlighted by W.G. Grace carrying his bat for 159 in England's only innings. Grace showed some of his famous gamesmanship during this innings, refusing to go off at the tea interval when he was not out and, through force of will, continuing the innings until the final wickets could be taken. They completed the trifecta with a win over New South Wales, this time by four wickets, with Turner's 11 wickets in the match in vain. This success stood the English in good stead going into the first test match, which was to commence in Melbourne on New Year's Day. This would also be the first test match to be played with six ball overs, first class cricket in Australia having made the switch two years previously. The Australians only had four survivors from their team in the final 1890 test, Blackham, Trot, Lyons and Turner. They were joined by three debutants, right arm and medium pacer Robert McLeod from Victoria and two New South Welshmen, all-rounder Sidney Calloway and Harry Donnan. Donnan was notable also due to his relationship to the famous Gregory family of cricketers, having married Ned's daughter, making him the brother-in-law of Sid. The final four players were familiar faces to Australian cricket fans who had been absent from test duty for some time. Alec Bannerman and Harry Moses were playing their first test since 1888, while William Bruce and George Giffen had not appeared for Australia since the 1886 tour. The return of Giffen especially was welcome, given his superb form so far that season, and would help provide bowling support for Turner now that Ferris had departed from Australia. The English handed a test debut to Bean, whilst Radcliffe and Phillipson were left out from the touring squad. On the morning of the match, Turner was unwell. With the Australians not wanting to be without him, they decided not to replace him, hoping to win the toss and bat so that Turner would have time to recover. The players also had to decide on a captain, with Harry Moses, New South Wales captain, suggesting Blackham should take charge. This was accepted by the rest of the players, with the Victorian heading out to toss the coin with Grace. Blackham used his own coin, and when Grace called incorrectly, the English captain tested the coin multiple times to make sure that it wasn't rigged. Blackham chose to bat in light of Turner's health and the condition of the pitch. The English side had garnered public interest like the previous tours hadn't seen, with over 20,000 in attendance to the first day's play. Lyons and Bannerman opened the batting, with Sharp and Peel commencing for the English. Being well aware of the temperaments of the two players, Grace crowded Bannerman with fielders, while spread them wider for the big-hitting Lions. Lyons opened the scoring, with a leg glance that picked up speed on the fast outfield to reach the boundary. He dominated the early scoring, hitting two more boundaries before Bannerman opened his account with a four of his own behind point. Peel got a fingertip to another one of Lyons' boundaries, but the miss didn't cop too much more as Lyons played one big shot too many, with Grace taking a smart catch of point off Peel, the first wicket falling at 32. Superstar Giffen arrived at number three, but failed to live up to his previous form, playing around a ball from Peel to be dismissed for two. Bruce replaced him and was nearly run out attempting a sharp single. Adewell and Lohman replaced the opening bowlers, but there was no further loss as the Australians went to lunch with a score on 52. Following with the resumption, Bannerman smartly cut sharp for four. 
It was Bruce, though, who dominated the scoring, twice pulling the ball to the boundary. Lohman attempted some off theory, trying to tempt Bannerman into a false stroke, but the Stonewaller kept his head. Bruce, meanwhile, continued to accelerate, moving into the 30s and passing his partner's score. Grace turned to Briggs, but to no avail, as Bruce hit through the leg side to bring up the 100 runs. Shortly after, a high hit that Abel couldn't get to before it landed brought up Bruce's 50, his first in tests. Through some excellent fielding efforts, the English managed to slow the scoring. This pressure eventually got to Bruce, playing around a fast one from Sharp to bowl to 57, part of an 87-run partnership with Bannerman. Donnan arrived and looked streaky, edging a boundary before the tee break gave him some respite. Following tee, Donnan resumed with more confidence, driving Peel for four. Bannerman also hit a boundary, but was then tempted into a false stroke from Sharp, with Reid taking a simple catch at mid-on. Bannerman's 45 had taken over three hours and done the part of making sure that Turner had time to recover from his illness. With the batsman crossing on Bannerman's dismissal, Donnan faced the next ball, only to have his stumps scattered by Sharp. This left the Australians at 5 for 136. Moses came to the wicket and Sharp's pace was causing problems, with Trot especially finding batting difficult. Trying to get off strike, Moses attempted a short single, but wrenched his leg so badly that it required Giffen to run for him. Run scoring slowed, with Trot eventually nicking a ball behind off Sharp, giving the left arm his fourth wicket of the innings. McLeod, the new man, managed to reach double figures before he too fell to a Sharp stump rattler. One debutante replaced another with Callaway coming into partner Moses with stumps approaching. Callaway didn't bat like it, however, attempting to hit everything outside off to the boundary, succeeding on a couple of occasions. No more chances were created, however, and the Australians were able to see through the stumps at 7 for 191, with Moses ending on 23 not out, having batted most of his innings on one leg. Grace generously tended to the injury that night back at the team hotel. Huge dust clouds rolled across the ground prior to the start of day two, but suspected rain stayed away as over 22,000 fans gathered to witness the play. They saw Moses out second ball of the day off sharp, caught by Lohman at slip without adding to his overnight score. This brought Turner to the crease, who showed little sign of the illness that kept him from the ground on day one, seeing the first ball he faced from Peel to the boundary. He partnered with Callaway and took the score past 200. Callaway swung hard, but missed more than he connected, whilst Turner managed to hit consecutive boundaries off Adderwell. Finally, Turner attempted to hit Peel to the leg side, but missed, with the ball cannoning off his pads to bowl him for 29, with four boundaries. The innings ended eight runs later when Callaway was bowled by Adderwell for 21. Blackham was the non-out batsman with the Australian innings ending on 240. This was considered under par, with many spectators believing there was a 300-run pitch. Sharp was the star for the English, finishing with six for 84 runs, whilst Peel claimed three. Grace and Abel opened for the English. There was surprise when Trot set down the first over, but Blackham was aware that the doctor was not fond of Trot's loopy bowling style. This intuition nearly paid off in the first over, as Grace hit a high ball into the onside, but it fell just short of Donnan at deep square leg. Giffen started at the other end, but was hit for four by Abel as lunch was taken. Following the break, Grace and Abel hit freely. Blackham positioned Bruce as a close-in catcher to Grace, with Grace remarking that Blackham clearly wanted a funeral in his team. After 20 runs was raised, Turner was tried, but Grace responded by pulling him to the boundary in front of Square. Trot especially came in for some punishment. 50 was raised quickly, with the local fans giving Blackham some friendly advice of what to do. He turned to debutants McLeod and Callaway, with a quick single leading to four overthrows courtesy of a wild throw from Lyons. The score raced into the 80s, but it was here that the first breakthrough was finally made, with McLeod bowling a bell for 32 to claim his first test wicket. This brought Bean to the crease. Grace took a single in the following over to bring up his 50. The first bully faced from McLeod's next over saw his leg stump pegged back to rapturous applause from the crowd. The English, who had started so well, were now two down for 85 runs. Two balls later, this became three down as Stoddart was caught in the slips for a duck. Reid joined Bean with both batsmen yet to register a score. Despite the three quick wickets, the two batsmen decided to keep up the aggressive game. 
Reid skied an attempted big hit between three Australian fielders, but got lucky as Trot failed to hold the catch. He then hit a hard one towards Donnan, who managed to stop the ball, although again it was a drop chance. The 100 came up shortly after, with Beans driving through the upside considered a highlight. The two managed to get through to tee without further loss at 126. Following the tee break, Sid Gregory, who was fielding in place of the injured Moses, just failed to reach another catching opportunity from Reid. Bruce was tried, but was cut for four off his first ball by Bean. The 50 partnership followed by the team 150 were raised. Blacken went back to his top two bowlers in Giffen and Turner to achieve the breakthrough, which finally came with a score on 171. Bean, who had just raised an even 50 after an hour of batting, lifted the ball into the offside off Giffen, only for Bruce to take an excellent catch running forward. Giffen followed this up by catching Reid one-handed off his own bowling for 36, whilst Lohman was trapped LEW by the same bowler for three. This left the English at 6 for 187, having lost three wickets to Giffen for only 16 runs. Peel and Briggs combined to take the score past 200, with Briggs dominating the scoring. Peel was missed by Trotter Point off a simple chance. Giffen thought he had another caught and bowled off Briggs, but unfortunately overstepped. The partnership reached 45 before McLeod finally made the breakthrough, bowling Peel for 19. Adderwell joined Briggs and the two managed to see out the rest of the day without further loss, ending at 7 for 248, going past the Australians' first inning score in the last 10 minutes of play. Following the Sunday rest day, 10,000 spectators arrived for the continuation of the tightly fought match. The first ball from Turner was left by Adderwell. The ball struck Blackham in his nether regions, leading to much mirth around the ground as the Australian keeper rolled around in pain. After he had recovered, Briggs faced up to the next ball, which he struck to mid-off, with the catch being taken by Bruce, dismissing him for 41. Adderwell failed soon after to the same bowler, with Bannerman claiming the catch of a hard-hit ball. The innings finished quickly, with McLeod claiming his fifth wicket with Sharp nicking behind to Blackham. The English innings thus concluded for 264, a lead of 24. Debutant McLeod was the star, with his 5 for 53 doing most of the damage, ably supported by Giffen's 3 and Turner's 2 wickets. Once again, Bannerman and Lyons commenced the Australian innings, facing Sharp and Peel. The Australian pair survived some close calls, with Bannerman chopping one past his stumps, whilst Lyons hit balls in the air close to the fielders. The two managed to survive to 20 runs, with both contributing equally to this amount. From here, Lyons took the dominant role in the scoring, finding the boundary and helping erase the Australian deficit. Lohman and Adderwell were tried, but neither could dislodge the openers as the Australians made their way to lunch with a score on 33. Following the break, Lyons continued to dominate. Whilst his big hits often found the fielders, he was continually gaining ones and twos and effectively farmed the strike. The 51 partnership was raised, whilst Lyons went to his individual half-century soon after, to much applause. This was his final act, however, as he edged the ball to a bail off Briggs to be out for 51, out of a score of 66. The saying one brings two played out as Giffen, who had scored a single off the first ball he faced, was bowled by Adderwell in the next over to a ball that kept low for that solitary run. Bannerman was then joined by Bruce. Scoring slowed again for a while, as the excellent English bowling and fielding kept a limit on the runs. Bannerman was more comfortable in this role than Bruce, who hit balls that fell short of fielders a couple of times. The score crawled to 93 by the tee break, with Bruce on 22 having gone past his partner Bannerman on 19. The run scoring didn't improve following the break, with Bannerman only able to progress by Nixon cuts, bringing up the 100 with a late cut. This seemed to release the shackles on Bruce, who began to swing with more freedom, with score positively racing to 120 before Bruce attempted one shot too many, falling to a catch in the slips off sharp for 40. Turner joined with Bannerman. Turner started with some quick singles, but was almost run out, only surviving as McGregor failed to take the bails off in time. Bannerman at this point started to increase his scoring, dragging a couple of balls from right outside off stump into the vacant leg side for twos. The 150 was raised shortly before stumps. However, at this point, the Australians managed to lose both set batsmen. Bannerman went first, caught by Grace off Sharp for 41. He had batted for almost four hours compiling this score. 
Moses hobbled to the wicket in time to witness Turner fall without a run added for 19, being caught at straight hit by Peel off Lohman. Trot came in to replace him as the two batsmen managed to see through without further loss at 5 for 152, a lead of 128. Another 10,000 strong crowd turned out for the fourth day's play. Blackham, running for the injured Moses, was nearly run out, but again McGregor was slow to take the bails off. Trot was more free-flowing in his scoring, playing on all sides of the wicket, whilst Moses, because of his bad leg, was restricted to playing offside shots. The two took the score into the 180s before their partnership was separated, with Trot being dismissed for 23 when he struck in front by Adderwell. As McLeod came to the crease, a dust storm raged across the ground, limiting the batsman's ability to score. Moses had managed to hobble his way to 15 and almost seen the score onto 200 before his runner Blackham fell short of his crease, with a quick throw from Sharp causing the fall of the 7th Australian wicket. Don enjoyed McLeod and managed to see the score past 200 before driving a ball straight back to Lohman to be out for two. Callaway almost immediately followed after, but McGregor failed to hold on to the edge. He took advantage by finding the boundary, whilst McLeod joined in by driving a ball from Lohman to the off-boundary on the stroke of lunch. This trains eight down for 228. Following the resumption, Callaway hit another boundary after a period of no runs, but McLeod fell soon after, being bowled by Peel for 21. Final batsman Blackham couldn't add anything to the score as Peel claimed his second, leading to the Australians' innings ending on 236, a lead of 212. The English bowlers shared the wickets on a pitch that was becoming increasingly difficult for batting. Grace opened the innings with Stoddart this time instead of a bell. This was in part due to Stoddart's more aggressive batting, with the hope being that the quick scoring would take the pressure off the rest of the innings. Australia started with McLeod and Turner, whilst Gregory again fielded in place of Moses. Grace opened with a boundary behind point off Turner, but chipped his bat in doing so, causing him to call for a replacement. Excellent fielding from Giffen, Bruce and Trott restricted the scoring, with the succession of Maidens building the pressure with the score only on 10. A couple of threes followed by two boundaries to square leg by Stoddart saw the scoreboard start to move. Grace attempted to delay the tea break given the momentum was in the English favour, but eventually was convinced to leave the ground with a score on 33 without loss. The break did not stop the scoring, the English now finding the gaps with ease. Trot was tried as Churner changed ends, but the batsmen liked the slow lobs of Trot, handling with ease. Grace brought up the 50 with a drive off a full toss, leading to Trot being replaced by Callaway. At this point, the game changed. Grace attempted to hit Turner over the offside, but only succeeded in spooning ball in the air, with Bannerman running in to take a smart catch, dismissing the great bat for 25. In the next over, Blackham tried Callaway, leaving a gap at mid-wicket. Stoddart tried to force a ball through the gap, but missed completely to be clean bowled for 35. The English had lost two wickets at 60 runs, and the trajectory of the game had changed. Bean was joined by Reid. Reid started positively, driving Turner to the boundary. This saw Blackham switch to the slows of trot, the hope being the batsman would make a mistake trying a big shot. This plan worked, with Bean attempting to hit him over the long on boundary, but only managed to find the safe hands of McLeod. Reid then tried to temper his natural game, but was caught in two mines, and Trox snuck one past his defences to bowl him, leaving England at 4 for 75. Peel joined with a bell, but the pressure was getting to them, with a call for a short single leaving them stranded mid-pitch. Luckily for them, Turner missed the throw from Gregory, allowing them to make their round. This reprieve was short-lived, however, as Turner clean-bowled Peel. Lohman fell to the same bowler without a run being added in the next over. Briggs came in and hit his first ball straight over Turner's head for four, but the next over he found Trotter point with a full-blooded cut off McLeod, sending him back for four. England was now at 7 for 98 with stumps on the horizon. McGregor arrived and managed to get England through without further loss in partnership with the Bell, but they finished the day 109 in arrears with only three wickets in hand. Despite the likelihood of an early result, a thousand people still turned up for the final day play, taking the total attendance to over 60,000 for the match, the highest for any test to this point. McLeod and Trot began for the Australians, with Turner surprisingly held back. 
England started well, with their bell firing the boundary and the score quickly rising into the 120s. Blacken was then rewarded with his decision to start with Trot, as he got McGregor to spoon a catch to Gregory. Adderwell replaced him and kept the scoring rate up, reaching double figures quickly. Turner replaced McLeod and managed to catch the edge of a bell, with Blackham taking a simple catch. This left the English on 139 with only one wicket remaining. Sharp joined Adderwell and the two managed to hang on for another 19 runs before Adderwell skied a ball to be well caught by Donnan, ending the match in a 54-run victory for the home side. Turner, who had taken the final wicket, was the star bowler, taking five for the innings for 51 runs. This was the first Australian Test win at home since the 1884-85 season and the first since the 1888 Tour of England, giving them a major advantage in winning their first series since 1882. Grace's team had also proved their value with their ability to draw a massive crowd, making the organisers of the tour and the local association very satisfied. The English then spent the remainder of January in Victoria playing local sides before making their way to Sydney for the second test, which was to commence on the 29th. In that intervening time, centuries to George Giffen and Lyons had given South Australia an innings victory over New South Wales, whilst Victoria had also inflicted a massive defeat on the Sydney siders in first-class matches. The English went into the second test unchanged, whilst George Giffen's much-maligned brother Walter came in for Donnan. Moses still remained hampered by his leg injury, but the selectors Blackham, Turner and George Giffen chose to keep him in the team in the hope they would be able to make it through the match. Upon seeing Moses' name on the team sheet, Grace warned Blackham, who was again chosen as Australian captain, that he would not allow a substitute fielder for the New South Welshman. Blackham won the toss and again chose to bat on what was seen as an excellent strip. Bannerman and Lyons commenced the innings, facing the bowling of Briggs and Sharp. Bannerman started with a boundary off Briggs in the first over, whilst Lyons was lucky to survive a strong leg before wicket appeal soon after. More runs soon flowed, with Lyons and Bannerman both finding the boundary. This saw Grace bring on Lohman, who soon after gained the first wicket by having Bannerman nick off, dismissing him for 12. He was replaced by George Giffen, who set in to play the part of support to Lyons, who was in fine form. Lyons continued to hit big, with a cut for four, followed up by two huge hits into the crowd for five. Lohman managed to claim his second wicket by having Giffen caught by a bell for six. The loss of his second partner didn't temper Lyons, who unleashed a fierce cut shot off Lohman. Grace, who was fielding a point, stuck out his left hand at the ball. He managed to parry the ball into the air, where he completed a simple catch, dismissing the South Australian dasher for 41. With the Australians score it now at 3 for 62, the impetus switched from the home side to the tourists as the teams took lunch. Two New South Welshmen, Moses and Turner, resumed batting following the break. They progressed to scoring ones and twos, with Moses' injured leg hampering his ability to take quick singles. They raised the score to 90 before one from Lyman rose sharply, catching Turner's glove and passing through for a simple catch to the keeper. Baruch replaced Turner and brought up the Team 100 with a well-cut four and the two batsmen looked to be building a strong partnership. However, the arrival of Adderwell to the bowling crease broke the batsmen's concentration, with Bruce skying a ball to Bean in the outfield. Trot could only manage two before becoming Lyman's fifth victim. New batsman McLeod called for a quick single. This proved too much for Moses' injured leg, the batsman visibly limping following its completion. As he had stated at the beginning of the match, Grace refused a runner. Moses, in pain, then ballooned a ball to the doctor at point, out for 29. Walter Giffen came to the crease and managed to see the score through to T at 7 for 132. Without adding to the score, Giffen managed to hit a catch back to Lohman, which the Englishman took low down. Giffen was unhappy with the umpire's decision, but eventually conceded. The Australian innings ended soon after for 144, with Callaway run out as the 10th wicket. Lohman had been the dominant force of the innings, adding McLeod to his tally to finish with a superb 8 for 58 off 43 overs, the second time he had claimed 8 wickets in an innings against the Australians. A bell and grace opened for the English, and despite a bump ball catch off grace that the crowd applauded wildly, the visitors had little trouble getting through to stumps at none for 38, with grace on 23 and a bell on 15. The deficit was just over 100 runs, and with 10 wickets still in hand, the English win an excellent position to take control of the match.
Day two dawned with over 20,000 spectators in attendance. Despite what he had said at the start of the match, Grace relented and allowed Tom Garrett to field in place of the injured Moses. The English batsmen continued in the vein they had left off the previous evening, raising the score to an even 50 before Turner managed to sneak one past the doctor's defences, bowling him for 26. He was replaced by Bean, who started with a cut shot off trot to the boundary. He would make it to 19 before playing a ball from Giffen back onto his stumps. New batsman Stoddart played and missed to the first two balls from Turner he faced, but put the next one into the stands for five. A leg glance off Giffen and two pull shots off Trot enabled Stoddart to race the score past 100. Meanwhile, Abel continued to gather runs without fuss and moved into the 40s. McLeod was tried, with Stoddart hitting in for the boundary in the first over. However, the bowler had his revenge, catching the edge of his bat to dismiss him for 27, with Blackham taking a simple catch. Reid departed shortly after, leaving the English at 4 for 127. The scoring rate continued to race along with the arrival of Peel, who twice hit Turner for four, helping take the English past the Australian first innings total. Abel brought up his 50 as a two look to build the English lead. However, just as he was looking dangerous, Peel edged a Turner ball to Giffen at slip to be out for 20. Lohman started with the four, followed by a hit into the enclosure for five, but danced down to Giffen and missed to be clean bowled. McGregor became McLeod's second victim when he was trapped LBW. At 7 for 178, the Australians had a chance of limiting the damage. However, at this point, Briggs combined with a bell. Briggs, after surviving a difficult court and bowl chance off Giffen, found boundaries all around the ground, whilst the bell took advantage of some loose bowling. The score went past 200 soon after the tee break, whilst the partnership went past 50. Trot was walked back and managed to snag the wicket of Briggs, trapping him at LBW. Next ball, Adderwell was clean bowled for a duck. Sharp survived the hat-trick ball and was able to hold his end up whilst the bell did most of the scoring. He reached 97 and pushed the ball back to mid-on for a short single. The fielder responded with a wild throw that led to two extra runs, allowing a bell to bring up his maiden test century. The score raced past first 250 and then 300 before Giffen returned to claim the final wicket, having Sharp caught by Bannerman for 26, having put on a 10th wicket partnership of 68 with a bell. The opener remained undefeated on 132 with 11 fours, becoming the second batsman in test cricket history to carry his bat. Giffen's four wickets were the best of the Australians, whilst the English score of 307 gave them a commanding 163-run lead. Bannerman and Trot opened the innings, with only 10 minutes play remaining. Trot scored a single, but was out on what was the last ball of the day, another victim of Lohman. The Australians would also be without Moses, whose injury would not allow him to bat, effectively leading them at the end of day two, 162 runs behind, with only eight wickets in hand. Following the rest day, Lyons joined Bannerman at the crease. Immediately, the South Australian went on the attack, racing the score along to 20. Lohman attempted some shorter pitch bowling, but the two batsmen handled him with ease, with Bannerman pulling a ball behind square to the boundary. The score continued to build, reaching 50 within half an hour of play commencing. Sharp replaced Lohman, but Lyons clipped him three times to the boundary in his first two overs. Off the last ball of his second over, Sharp had Lyons reaching at a wide one, only to edge through to slip where a bell dropped it. Lyons was on 49 at this point and brought up his 50 soon after. He continued to go after Sharp, taking 10 off one over, leading to Grace replacing his bowler with Peel. This had little impact, with Lyons twice cutting in for four to bring up the 100-run partnership. Meanwhile, Bannerman, who'd gone over half an hour without scoring, continued to look untroubled, happy to play second fiddle to the flying Lions. Grace tried himself before lunch, but was ineffectual as a break was taken with the Australians close to eliminating the deficit. The lunch break did little to diminish Lyons' appetite for runs. He was approaching his 100 when he hit out at a ball from Grace, skying it towards Longon. Briggs charged in, but failed to reach as the ball bounced in front of him. Soon after, Lyons' maiden test century was raised by cutting Peel to the boundary, a landmark well received by the 15,000-strong crowd.
Other markers continue to be passed, with the score racing past 144 the Australians scored in the first innings. The deficit of 162 was wiped out, whilst Lyons soon after matched Bell's score of 132. The score had increased to 175 before Lyons finally gave another chance, this time off Lohman, which Grace accepted at point. He departed having made 134 in just under three hours with 15 boundaries and had swung the game back into the Australians' favour. He was replaced by his fellow South Australian George Giffen, who took up where he had left off. Bannerman ended the session with a boundary as the teams took tea. Giffen opened up after tea with another boundary, taking the score past 200. Bannerman brought up his 50 soon after, having ballad well over four hours for the milestone. The partnership reached 50 as all the other options were tried with no success. Lohman had a loud appeal for leg before on Giffen as the score reached 250, but was not successful. Giffen was on the brink of his own personal milestone, but fell LBW to Adderwell for 49. With a score now at 3 for 254, Bruce joined Bannerman with stumps on the horizon. The two batsmen managed to see through to the conclusion of the day, with Bannerman undefeated on 67 runs. The Australians were on 263, a lead of just over 100, with plenty of wickets left in the shed. The start of day four saw rain clouds approaching. Still, 12,000 spectators flocked to the ground. They witnessed the Australian batsmen start confidently, with both founding the boundary in the first overs they faced. The 300 was raised soon after the commencement of play, but here the showers closed in, delaying play until the lunch break was taken at 2pm. Following the resumption of play, Bruce back cut a ball off Adderwell. Lohman at slip jumped up and got his left hand to the ball, but was unable to complete the catch. A skied ball from Bannerman also fell short of sharp running in from the deep. Grace then turned to Briggs. Bannerman hit the first ball of his over for three. Bruce hit the next ball to square leg for four, bringing up his 50 to much applause. The next ball was skied, but landed between two fielders. The following ball raced towards the boundary, with Scotter running hard to cut it off for two. Bruce then found the boundary with the next ball, before finishing the over off with a three. 16 had come off the one Briggs over. Bruce continued to play a dash of innings until the score reached 347, where he was finally out, caught it slip off sharp. He made 72 with eight boundaries and had dominated a 93-run partnership with Bannon. McLeod came to the wicket under some duress, having learned by telegram of the death of his brother the day before. He played recklessly, surviving a caught-behind appeal and would have been stumped if not for keeper error. Bannerman had moved into the 90s and was looking set for a maiden test century when he finally made a mistake, popping a ball from Briggs to Grace in the offside. His 91 had included only three boundaries, but had lasted for almost seven hours, a masterful effort in concentration and doggedness. He departed with the score at 5 for 364, a lead of over 200 runs. McLeod, joined by Turner, fell soon after for 18 off Peel, which signalled the tea break. Walter Giffen joined with Turner, and the two took the score onto 391 before Briggs struck. Giffen was out bowled for three. His replacement Blacken was struck on the pads and given out first ball. Callaway faced a hat-trick delivery, but could only edge it to Grace at slip, giving Briggs the first test hat-trick since Billy Bates in 1883. He finished as the best of the bowlers with four, whilst Lomans two saw him complete a 10-wicket match given his eight in the first innings. With Moses unable to bat, the Australians' innings ended, leaving the English requiring 229 runs to win. McLeod, soon after his dismissal, had left to catch a train back to Melbourne due to his brother's death. With Moses also unable to field, Harry Donnan, who had played in the previous test, joined Garrett as substitute fielders. Once again, Grace and Abel opened for the English. Turner bowled the first over, whilst George Giffen started at the other end. Immediately, the South Australian struck, with Abel skying a ball which was caught by George's brother Walter. This gave George his fifth of the match, and he was only just getting started. George Giffen was born on the 27th of March 1859 in the Adelaide suburb of Norwood. He attracted early attention as a cricketer of promise and first joined Norwood Cricket Club before moving to West Adelaide. He would go on to make his first class debut in 1877 as an 18-year-old, playing for South Australia against Tasmania. 
Even as a young man, he was often the best player in his side, with his all-round skills giving the less developed South Australian side a chance against the more established colonies Victoria and New South Wales. Batting right-handed and bowling off-spin, he made his test debut in 1882 against Shoreside. His performance saw him selected for his first England tour in 1882, where he played in the famous Ashes Test. He would join the next two tours, taking on more responsibility and culminating his outstanding 1886 tour, where he scored over 1,500 runs and took over 150 wickets. Back home, he also became the first Australian to take all 10 wickets in a first-class innings, whilst on six occasions he would perform the feat of scoring a century and taking 10 wickets in a match. No less a judge of talent than W.G. Grace called him the most outstanding all-rounder in the world. However, injuries and disputes with authorities had meant Giffen hadn't played test cricket since the end of that 1886 tour until this season. He was planning on making up for lost time. Bean replaced a bell at the crease. He struck turn to the straight boundary for four, but the terror got his revenge soon after, having him caught by Lyons, with Soddock coming into the crease to replace him. Grace struck out at Giffen, but Giffen dropped the difficult return chance. Finally, with rain in the air, Grace attempted the cut-off turner, but could only feather it behind to Blackham. The English were now in a precarious position at 3 for 11. Unfortunately for the Australians, they couldn't capitalise on this position immediately, with the rain leading to the end of the play for the day. Dalweather greeted the players for the fifth day, with Soddart joined by Reid at the crease. The pitch was not as difficult as expected, with the two Englishmen handling the bowling with ease. Trot was tried in place of Giffen without success, as the score breezed along past 50. The two also raised a 50-run stand before Giffen was returned to the crease. Finally, Reid was tempted to hit a ball back to Giffen, who accepted the catch low down. Peel replaced him, hitting Giffen to the long-on boundary. He attempted to repeat the shot, but missed to be stumped by Blackham. Half the English side was now out with a score at 83. Lyman also played in the same manner as Peel, finding the boundary, but ultimately falling to Giffen. Stoddart, who had raised his individual 50, and new batsman McGregor managed to survive to the lunch break with a score at 6 for 120. Following the resumption, the two batsmen batted more cautiously, with Stoddart preferring to move his score on with 1s and 2s rather than the boundaries he previously had. He took his score on to 69 when Turner managed to get one past his defences to clean bowl him. He had batted for over two hours, but with him gone, the English resistance fell away, with the final three wickets falling for only 22 runs. The final score of 156 meant the Australians had come away victorious by 72 runs. Giffen, who had ended the innings with six to go with the four he claimed in the first innings, had completed his first 10-wicket match in tests, whilst Turner claimed the other four. The crowd went wild with the result, converging on the ground and cheering all the players. Throughout Sydney, people gathered around newspaper offices to hear the score come through. The fans gathered 100 sovereigns to be shared between Lions and Bannerman for their superb batting. This result meant the Australians took an unassailable 2-0 lead in the series, their first series win in almost 10 years since the 1882 England tour. Despite the third test being a dead rubber, there was still excitement that the Australians would be able to clean sweep the great English side. With almost two months between the end of the second and beginning of the third tests, the English made their way through country New South Wales and Tasmania. They defeated both the New South Wales and Victorian sides comfortably before the third test, which was the final game of the tour and would be played in Adelaide. Donnan and Sid Gregory came in for the Australians, replacing Moses and Callaway, whilst the English made the surprising decision to drop sharp and bring in their second wicketkeeper Philipson. Grace won the toss and chose the bat on what was looking like an excellent pitch. The English captain opened with the bell, whilst Giffen and McLeod commenced the attack for the Australians. Ominously, Giffen's first ball was put away to the boundary by a bell, setting the tone for the rest of the day's play. A bell in particular took advantage of the fast outfield and dominated the scoring early. Trot and Turner replaced the two openers with a score on 36. Grace took a liking to the slows of Trot, hitting him for three boundaries in his first over. A bell tried to get in on the action, running out to Trot but missing, leading him to be stumped for 24. Stoddart joined Grace with a score on 47. He was nearly out early off Turner, but an inside edge both missed the stumps narrowly, whilst Blackham failed to complete a catch. The two would remain together until lunch, taking the break with the score at 1 for 67. 
Soon after lunch, Stoddart could have been run out, but Don and Miss Fielded the ball. Grace continued to take advantage of Trot's bowling, cutting him off and behind point. Given replaced him, but Stoddart put him over the fence onto the cycling track that surrounded the ground. The hum was raised, whilst Grace soon after went past his individual 50. McLeod was brought back and managed to get one past Grace's bat, bowling the doctor for 58. He had eight fours and was well applauded by the crowd. Reed joined Stoddart, joining in the run scoring after surviving an early chance when Giffen failed to reach a catch hit in his direction. Stoddart's own 50 came up with a team 150 and the score raced towards 200. Lacking bowling options, Blackham turned to Donnan. With a score on 199, Donnan managed to find the edge of Reed's bat, where he was well taken by Blackham. Everyone on the ground believed he had hit it, except the umpire, whose loud call of not out dampened the celebrations. Soon after, Reed brought up his own 50 as the teams departed for the tea break with the English on a commanding 2 for 209. The break did Reed no favours, nearly being caught off the first ball he faced, followed by his eventual dismissal for 57, caught by Gregory off Turner. Being replaced him while Stoddart took charge as the senior partner, dominating a 54-run stand. Stoddart hit Turner into the crowd, with the catch being taken by his teammate Lohman. Given was tried with no success, as Stoddart hit him for consecutive fours, bringing up his 100 to generous applause. Bean fell to Lions for 16 with a score of 272, but Peel was able to combine with Stoddart to see the English through to the end of the day on 4 for 313. Stoddart remained undefeated on a magnificent 129, with the prospect of more runs to come on the superb batting ground. Upon the resumption of play, Stoddart moved his score onto 134 before he was trapped in front by local hero Giffen. His innings had lasted almost four hours and included 15 fours and two fives. His replacement Lohman survived a run-out opportunity, but still failed to trouble the scorers when he became another Giffen LBW victim. This brought Briggs in to join Peel. Both Matsman took advantage of some wayward bowling, as Peel brought up his 50 with a shot through the league side. With little difficulty, the two batsmen survived through until lunch, taking the score onto 6 for 399. Despite light rain, play resumed on time. Peel hit a ball in the air to Bannerman and started to walk off the field. However, Bannerman didn't live up to his reputation and dropped the catch, much to the amusement of his teammates. Turner, who Bannerman had dropped the catch off, managed to get one into his wickets column by bowling Briggs for 39, having shared a 79-run partnership with Peel. Phillipson came to the crease, but two quick strikes, including Peel for 83, left the English on 425 with only one wicket left. The final pair of McGregor and Adderwell combined to frustrate the Australians, however, as heavier rain made the ball difficult for the bowlers to grip. The score moved past 450. Blackham turned to trot, but the two batsmen took him for 15 in his owning over. The score moved on to 490 before the umpires finally decided that the rain was too heavy for play, leading to an end in proceedings for the day. The rain continued all through the night, thoroughly changing the nature of the pitch. The 12,000 strong crowd all agreed that the match was almost certain to end in an English victory. Play commenced an hour after the scheduled time. McGregor and Adderwell took the score towards 500, but upon attempting a second run, McGregor was run out for 31. Adderwell remained not out on 43, as the English finished on an imposing 499. The wickets were shared by the Australians, with Turner picking up three. The heroes of the previous test, Lyons and Bannerman, opened the batting, facing Briggs and Lohman. The two Australians tried to take their chances on a difficult pitch, quickly racing to 30 runs. Bannerman played a ball in front of Bean a point off Lohman. Bean dived forward and scooped it off the ground, claiming the catch. The umpire agreed with the appeal and Bannerman had to make his way off the ground for 12. His replacement George Giffen made 5 before being run out by the keeper. Bruce and Lyons then took the score under 48 before both batsmen were out on that score, with one wicket each to Briggs and Lohman. Lyons 31 would end up being the top scorer of the innings. Gregory attempted to play most balls behind point, leading to his downfall when he was caught at slip off Briggs. The Australians had now lost half their side to 51 runs. Turner and McLeod hit out, taking the score to 66 before Turner became Briggs' third victim, whilst Trot departed first ball having missed a full toss and was bowled by the same bowler. Lohman then claimed his third by having the hapless Walter Giffen nick one behind. 
McLeod continued to hit out, taking his score to 20 before an off-break from Briggs rattled his stumps. The final pairing put on 10 to take the score to an even 100 before Briggs claimed his sixth wicket to end the innings. With a deficit of 399, there was little surprise when the Australians were asked to bat again. The Australian second innings was off to a bad start when Bannerman was bowled by Briggs with only a run on the board. This brought George Giffen in to join fellow South Australian Lions. The two combined well, taking advantage of some light rain that made bowling more difficult. Giffen was particularly cheered by his home fans for some powerful drives that made the way to the long on boundary. When the score reached 42, however, Lions fell, with Stoddart taking a fine catch off Briggs. Giffen and Bruce took the score past 50 before Giffen fell, skying a ball high to Bean off Adderwell. Turner joined Bruce, who was in an aggressive mood. He took 10 off of Briggs over and had made his way to 24 when he lifted one to the boundary where Lohman dropped the chance, whilst on 31 he missed a ball from Adderwell but managed to make it back to his crease before being stumped. However, England struck soon after, dismissing Turner for 5 whilst Bruce fell LBW to Adderwell for an entertaining 37. Gregory failed to reach double figures, becoming another victim of Briggs, leaving the Australians at 6 for 99. McLeod and Trott combined and continued the aggressive batting, with Trott putting one from Briggs into the crowd. His aggression cost him, however, as he was soon after stumped off the same bowler for 16. Walter Giffen became the last wicket to fall before stumps, becoming Briggs' sixth victim, giving him an impressive 12 for the match. McLeod was 8 not out, with only two wickets in hand, the match was expected to be over shortly into the fourth day. The remaining two wickets took an hour for the English to claim on the fourth day, with McLeod taking his score onto 30 with some attacking batting. He eventually fell to Lohman, whilst Adderwell managed to claim the final wicket of both the match and the tour, bowling the Australian captain for nine. This ended the Australian innings on 169, giving the English a consolation victory by an innings and 230 runs. Despite this loss, the Australians were lauded for their successful result in the series. Despite losing the Test Series, the English had put on a strong performance during the tour. They had not lost a match against any of the major colonies. Grace had led the batting, scoring over 400 runs in the first-class matches at an average of over 40, whilst the three key bowlers Briggs, Lohman and Adderwell had all taken over 30 wickets at an average of 16 or under. However, there had been some tension amongst the tourists, with Grace and Stoddart coming to blows before the Adelaide Test. Grace also didn't handle the gamesmanship of the local crowds the best. The amount that it cost to bring Grace to Australia saw the tour lose money in the end, despite the huge crowds the English had drawn, although Sheffield didn't seem concerned about the almost £3,000 loss. The tour, however, was a major turning point in Australian cricket. The crowds had flocked back to international matches, whilst the fight the Australians showed in winning the first two tests had reinvigorated fans' love for their side. The first series win in a decade at home also showed the recovery from the dark days of division and dispute in the mid-1880s. More so, Sheffield departed leaving Australia the final gift of 150 guineas. After much discussion, this would finally compel the different associations to work together on the establishment of the competition and trophy that still bears his name today 130 years on, the Sheffield Shield. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.